Hi, this is Stephanie Fay, and this is season two. Thanks for joining. This is season two, episode seven. As usual, I'll start this episode with a question. You may have witnessed or heard about certain animals in the zoo pacing back and forth. So something that I know has occurred in the past is that, for example, polar bears may pace back and forth so much on a single path that the pavement actually wears down and they have to replace the pavement. And this can happen with other species as well. My question is, is the bear pacing back and forth in the same track on the same path over and over again until the pavement wears out? Is that normal? And a follow-up question is, what's the difference between normal and natural? That's what we'll talk about in today's episode. So in the example of the polar bear, we might be able to use the word normal in the sense that on average, perhaps, bears tend to do that type of behavior in zoos. And so if you look at a subset of bears who are in maybe a certain size of enclosure, that there are certain behaviors that come up that are statistically more probable maybe even up to 70% of bears or animals in zoos, for example, engage in this kind of behavior. In that sense, when the statistics show a large portion of whatever this group is that we're talking about doing something, it could be considered normal. We could even say that this behavior is adaptive in a sense, because within a certain enclosure, if an animal wants to get a certain amount of blood flow and engage some of those systems, that might be what they need to do. So it's not even necessarily maladaptive, considering, for example, the square footage of their enclosure. But we can probably see that it's not behavior that's natural to the bear. They don't naturally do something like that in the wild when there is plenty of space for them to do other things. So there's something about the design within nature of a bear, for example, that would not lead it to pace back and forth over and over and over again on the same path day after day, hour after hour. There's something about the structure that it is in that is leading it to adopt behaviors that are not natural, but that eventually we can accept as normal. I want us to reflect on this idea on multiple levels. I want to go into, in upcoming episodes, the idea of what happens in society collectively when we start accepting certain structures and systems as normal, even if they don't lead to natural behavior. And I'll go a little more into what I mean by natural in this episode as well. But in today's episode, I want us to just focus still a little bit more on our personal stuff, the stuff that happens within our very individual interactions with others, and how that is also affected by what has happened and does happen within our family structures. And later we will, in another episode, we'll expand that out into more of the societal kind of levels. So in line with that, maybe you can reflect on your personal life for a second and think about some things that might be seen as very normal, in quote, to you. 
but that may not necessarily be natural. There are behaviors that are normal because of a certain system or enclosure, in a sense, that you find yourself within, whether that's a type of job and organization, community, family structure, relationship, etc. And I wonder if when you reflect on this normal behavior, that it might actually either currently be or was adaptive in a certain sense particularly to some type of system you were a part of in an earlier time. But what I want you to be reflecting on right now is if some of these normal behaviors and what I'm going to call neurochemical set points, if those are adaptive now in your current behaviors and situations. Some examples of that can be related to things like even cortisol and adrenaline levels that are coursing through our systems, the level of vigilance that might be there, a level of defensiveness, Even certain things like needing to interrupt people to get your point across and not being able to wait for them to finish a sentence, (laughs) needing to fill in the space in between and not being able to pause or withdrawing and avoiding speaking about things, difficult conversations, emotionally charged ones, or doing things to please others and get their approval, even if there are possibly some signals that you are getting that you would rather not do those things. So those are just a few examples of behaviors that might have evolved over time that were adaptive according to some of our earliest experiences and environments. It might have been that withdrawing and avoiding certain situations was really the best option for you when you were little. It might have been that you never had a chance to speak up and make your point, or you had to speak up and interrupt all the time because channels of information flow were not easily navigated in your family situation. Or there was a lot of pressure to do things for other people and their approval was very conditional based on you doing things that pleased them or they approved of. So all of those things are possibly behaviors that you acquired when you had fewer degrees of freedom of what kind of structure you were gonna live within. Just like the polar bear in that enclosure If there are certain hierarchies and rules, in a sense, that are occurring within your social environment when you were little, and you don't yet have the body maturity and the other types of neural and behavioral resources that are needed for you to navigate outside of that environment. So when you were little, you may need to just be at home with your family, and there are not a lot of options other than that. Also within your home, you may need to be within whatever community you are in because there are not a lot of options for that, especially when you're young. So that's just one layer of thinking about what can feel very normal to us in terms of the behaviors that we have. And part of where this normalcy comes from is based on the, what I call sociobiological signals, as well as the schemas and roles that are created within family structures. So as an example of that, of how these types of structures can lead to certain behaviors that just become somewhat repetitive and normal in quotes to us, I think it's helpful to acknowledge the very first power dynamic that exists within our experience when we're first born. And that power dynamic is that your survival depended entirely on someone else. And that person, whoever that was, group of people, but generally there's a, a more dominant person or one or two people within in this scenario that saw your survival as depending on them. So we could use the phrase, 
even though there's no words yet, your little mind brain body system is calculating that your life is in that person's hands. And that person's mind brain body system is also calculating that your life is in their hands. And so this can create already a framework where different sociobiological signals are being projected out and detected, served and returned, where that person knows that you depend very much on them and you know that you depend on them. Part of what this mechanism is, is something that's also referred to in systems thinking as burden shifting, or I would even call offloading. And I talked about this in the last episode, where your ability to self-regulate is offloaded or shifted to someone else, and they take on that burden. What can happen in terms of this type of dynamic is that there is a certain type of movement and communication system that starts to occur that leads to, in a sense, a neurochemical state within each being that is related to how much they depend on the other. And so a caregiver can get very used to the different movements and biological signals that are occurring within them of being needed and being needed to a point where another's life depends on them. And what this actually does is this type of being depended on is a sense of uh, certainty against rejection. Because if another person requires you to actually survive, they cannot reject you. And so there is a certain type of codependency that is biologically and evolutionarily necessary for our first experiences in life. But as you as a little being start to learn how to navigate and manipulate your world to larger and larger degrees, and you're able to do a little bit more for yourself, that proportion, that ratio of your survival depending on that caregiver or those caregivers starts to go down. And so what then also starts to happen is a change in the communication dynamics and the sociobiological signals that are being passed back and forth. And so we see a lot of struggles during this time. You can see that in even before this, but definitely during what we call the terrible twos, where there is a decent amount of already very mature movement in terms of being able to walk around, grab things and explore your territory, which within that increases a sense of power, which comes from just degrees of freedom that are being acknowledged within that little body that's able to navigate and manipulate the environment a little bit better. And so this burden shifting, the power dynamic starts to change. And what we often don't realize within this power dynamic is that there are these neurochemical states, these neurochemical set points that were created based on this level of codependency. And it can cause both parties to go through a sense of withdrawal the different neural networks that are activated and these signals that are being sent when a person is completely dependent on you start to shift. And so this is an extreme example in a sense, but it's one of the most primal ones that occur within the system that we would call family structures. And it's something that happens at various phases throughout the family's evolution where our movements and sociobiological signals become somewhat accustomed to a certain arrangement, to certain roles and a certain hierarchy. And this creates a, a system, a type of stability within that system, where most members of this system, of this family system, don't need to expend too much energy on figuring out how to change the roles and positions and hierarchies. And this is really helpful 
This is helpful for us to conserve energy. And it's helpful for the system because as we get used to and familiar with these different roles that we play and the dynamics that occur within our family system, our mind-brain-body system doesn't have to expend extra resources to constantly calculate a new scenario and another scenario and another scenario. So there is, in a sense, a favoring of our mind-brain-body system to be somewhat conservative in expending its resources. I sometimes call this a energy conservation system or even a status quo preserver, an SQP. So the family system and the dynamics and the roles and the hierarchy and these kind of dependent relationships are in many ways favored by the nervous system and the neural architecture and all that kind of stuff that exists within most of the members because it's energy conserving. What's tricky about that, and I referred to this in the last episode, is there's a difference between static stability and resilience. And so I like to compare two different types of these systems with the one that has to do with stability and stability in a sense being its goal to keep things in the format that they are as a status quo preserver and SQP. Whereas a resilient system, which is that the purpose may still stay the, stay the same, but how that's accomplished and the format and structure may change to be more in the realm of possibility type of system, an ROP. And that system is riskier, requires more neural and behavioral resources to change over time, for the dynamics to change, and for those neurochemical set points to also change and fluctuate. So it's often not one that gets favored by family systems. And so what I'm getting at with this is that within our families, within our earliest experiences, there may be roles that each of us played that were adaptive within that system as it was, but that the system itself, the family itself, not in a malicious way, not even not in a conscious way at all, may have been afraid of evolution of any of the members, of any of the members to grow out of that system, to change it too much. Because this type of system is trying to be stable over time. And part of what can cause this type of fragility within the system is if the goals of the members which we could also call subsystems, if the goals of the members of the family are all different from each other. And so if one family member is trying to maintain the structure of the family and maybe the hierarchy of it and the sense of dependence that the other members have on that member because that's what's comfortable for them in terms of the different behaviors and energy conservation programs that are running within them, if one member's goal is to have that Whereas another member's goal is to have freedom and expansion and trying to figure out what else can happen outside of the family. Another member's goal might be to stay dependent on the family, for example. When all these goals differ, that's where a lot of friction can occur because the behaviors of each of these members are now going against each other. So what I want you to reflect on is how the family structure that you had growing up and how the different dynamics that were involved may have led to a certain type of behavior and exchanges occurring within different members that led you to believe certain things about you were wrong, inappropriate, not to be explored, and how that might lead you to have some of those mental models in place now in your current relationships. 
So going back to the previous episode, there are different mental models that can be created when we're little, like my needs are too much, my needs are never met, I'm on my own, I'm not supported, I always need someone. Different dynamics like that that occurred within your family structure. What can be helpful to think about in your current relationships is if you are carrying any of those mental models with you now. And in the next section, I want to go into how this relates to normal and natural. So in terms of the behaviors I was just referring to that you might now consider normal, that are based on mental models that come from when you were young, might lead you to create dynamics within your relationships now that mimic in a certain way what happened in your family. You may also be on guard all the time for finding evidence that proves whatever that mental model is. So if you didn't feel supported, if you didn't feel favored, or if you always felt favored, (laughs) that mental model was created. And unless you consciously have added new awareness to it, since then, it likely is still running in the background as kind of a default program for you. So that dynamic and you seeking out signals that confirm it might still exist in your relationships now. And what that does is it creates, in a sense, a neurochemical set point for you. So if you were also used to a lot of adrenaline and cortisol and stress because of different things that were happening in certain dynamics in your family, then that those levels also create a certain type of sensation within your body when those kinds of hormones are are going through you that create almost a set point that feels familiar and normal in quotes to your body because as your body gets used to those kinds of neurochemical states and those sociobiological signals it figures out its own algorithms and calculations to deal with that and it devotes resources to those mental models and those neurochemical states and signals and all that stuff, it devotes resources to adapt to that because that was your most common experience when you were little. And when something happens in a, in a constant patterned way, repetitive over time, your brain, mind, brain, body system devotes resources to adapt to it. It needs to do that. So those patterns and that repetitiveness of those experiences when you were little are now running in the background in a sense and creating a certain type of familiar sensation within your body as well when it comes to certain dynamics. So it might be different from with you and one family member versus another, a authority figure versus a different member, for example. There's going to be familiar neurochemical states that might occur. Your relationship with different family members and the role that they served within the dynamic or the hierarchy that was existing in your family those became familiar and normal to you. And the different signals and behaviors that you projected out to adapt to that may be so automatic now that you have no awareness that you do them within your current relationships. And there can also be a type of neurochemical state, internal state, that you can maybe not entirely consciously, but viscerally even sense that is very familiar. And when you aren't in that neurochemical state, it feels wrong and unfamiliar and not normal. And so you, your mind-brain-body system gets alerted to that. It doesn't have the neural behavioral resources to deal with all of that yet. That means it needs to now expend extra resources to deal with it. So a lot of times, because our mind-brain-body system is an energy-conserving system, it will seek out how to go back to what it does know how to do. 
And so there is a, it triggers almost a sense of alarm when we do things that are not familiar to how we were when we were little and the dynamics that occurred. And so we can find ourselves in somewhat repetitive patterns within different relationships. And again, different from each person to the next and often very related to how we perceive them in the sense of a hierarchy for us. Are they someone that is above us in terms of dominance, equal or below? etc, etc. How they meet our needs. Do we depend on them for a certain thing? Do they depend on us? All of those types of dynamics will change the mental model that gets activated within you in each of those scenarios. So we can also call that a schema, that mental model. So those are the behaviors that are fairly normal for us. And it's why we can often see somewhat repetitive patterns that happen within families over generations. Now, this is in contrast to natural, and within the word natural, we see the word nature. And if we look at the nature of a human being and human systems, whether we're talking about societies or families or relationships, these are complex adaptive systems. And a complex adaptive system is something that increases in its complexity and is able to create new systems that also increase in their own complexity. And they're systems that evolve and flex, and they may change how this type of dynamic evolution and flexibility occurs. So the channels of information may be very different over time. And part of what allows for a complex adaptive system to do what it naturally does, which is increase in its its own complexity, is that it stays open to new data that can contribute to new combinations of data on an ongoing, perpetual, eternal basis for more complexity. And so when we are doing something in a very automated, repetitive way, we may be shutting down the opportunity for new data to enter this system and update it and allow it to evolve. And so although there is a value to having stability and having roles and hierarchies, and there's a reason why nature creates them as well, it becomes unnatural when there is a repetitiveness that does not seem to really adapt or evolve in its complexity, much like the polar bear pacing back and forth. And we can see this in a lot of family dynamics, that it doesn't matter how old you are, when you are in the presence of your family and your parents, a lot of the members of the family already believe they know what the other person is going to say. And so they barely even hear what information is being exchanged. They go into their own mental model and predictive paradigm of that family member. And they basically filter everything that family member is saying through that mental model, rather than actually staying open to the data. And rather than perceiving that family member as something, someone, a system who has evolved over time. And it creates this very repetitive exchange of information that is very redundant. And there is not a lot of novel information being exchanged. And this partly has to do with this filtering system that's occurring in these family members because of the mental models that they have with each other. And so that is not natural for a complex adaptive system. What would be more natural is for there to be a presence for holding space for this exchange of information of family members to be received in a way that doesn't get filtered entirely through each member's perception of the other person built only on their history. 
which obviously we cannot erase that. That's part of who we are and there's benefits to it. But when we almost shut down and don't even really hear what the other person is saying because we believe we know what they mean or what it means about them, we are cutting off. We're constricting the information flow. That is a very natural part of a complex adaptive system is the opening of channels of information flow to allow for more complexity. So one thing that we can just reflect on to help us improve that is we may not be able to go back in time. And there is not necessarily a lot that we can do to force any family member to think in a new way. But in the relationships that we are a part of now, we can reflect on the purpose of that relationship and how much we are allowing for open information flow to occur within that structure or relationship or system and how much we are doing that is automatic that might be coming from our past experiences. So I'm less of a fan of talking about a very specific technique or modality and more about just the awareness and mindset that we can integrate into our relationships. And that right there, without even having to figure out how to change another person, within our relationships or family, if we stay open to the information flow by really even slowing down a little bit, our interactions, holding space a little longer, a pause in between exchanges of words, holding physical touch a little bit longer as well, slowing down some of those sociobiological movements within our relationships, that's adding a level of conscious awareness to what we are doing, which means that it's, going, it's less automated. When things are very quick and unconscious, it's often because it's a mental model from the past. It's a system that's already been established. When we can consciously slow some of that down within our relationships, it means that we are bringing some of that prefrontal cortex activity and attention to our information exchanges. So in summary, I just wanted to bring up the the concept of natural versus normal. And I'm just going to pause for a second because you might be hearing <laughs> um, my cat who is purring and trying to rub himself all over my podcast notes and <laughs> my face. I just thought I would allow you guys to experience <laughs> some of the stuff that occurs as I'm recording podcasts, which I usually edit out, but I'm leaving this one in for you guys. Anyway, so what I wanted to just go over in this episode is the difference between natural and normal. Normal is often based on history. Natural is based on the nature of systems and particularly complex adaptive systems when we're talking about humans. So the nature of complexity. And those, I think those are important concepts for us to think about as we go into our relationships. And finally, to end this episode, just a couple of reflection questions. What is a normal or familiar internal state for you? Is it vigilant and stressed and anxious? Is it lethargic and down and hopeless? Or it might be a, a big blend and fluctuation of all these things. But one thing I just wanted to follow up with on that question is, let's say there are periods or patterns of you having anxiety or lethargy or just more of a negative kind of state. Do you have moments 
where you are not in that, where you almost transcend that kind of state. And what is that experience like? So if you have a lot of anxiety within a certain relationship and then all of a sudden you don't feel that, what is that experience like? And do you notice something happening within you or within your behaviors that actually ends up bringing you back into what is more familiar to you? The anxious or stressed out state or defensive or whatever that is. And then one other question, reflection question is, what is a, in quote, normal dynamic or role that you may take on with certain people in, their, in your life? And especially depending on how you perceive them in kind of the hierarchy and role that they play. So do you often take on their burdens or do you expect them to take on yours as a couple of examples? And then finally, in a kind of wrap up of both of those questions, is when you do something that's not familiar Does your mind and does your experience go to the idea that it's wrong, not just unfamiliar, but wrong and something that you, in quote, shouldn't do? So that's just something I have found helpful in my own life. And that's why I'm bringing it up as a reflection is when do we associate unfamiliar with wrong? And I think that's a really powerful question to be bringing up in our minds more often. And if you'd like to go into any of these topics more deeply and learn how to really integrate neuroscience and a lot of these mechanics that I'm teaching about resilience and post-traumatic growth, things like that, I hope you'll join me for one of my upcoming group workshops. They will be starting in July. On July 24th, I'm going to have one on mindset and agency, and we'll be looking at pathway thinking and hope and some of the different circuitry and stuff like that involved in that. And then in August, it's going to be about trauma and attachment, and I'll be going over a multi-tier nervous system framework that combines polyvagal theory and attachment and nervous system kind of stuff. And I also do offer one-on-one coaching. My spots are pretty limited, um, but there will be some opening up in August. And I do a, a coaching program where I've been helping people really synthesize various fields of research and figure out how to integrate it really deeply into their own work as coaches, teachers, executives, and things like that. So if you're interested, go to my website at stephaniefay.com slash consulting, and there will be some openings. They'll go pretty quickly because I will likely only have one or two spots open in July or August for the coaching, but there are also the group programs as well. And you can also email me comments or questions. My email address is new from last season. So it is hello at stephaniefay.com. And I hope to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.